Well, good evening. Tonight is lesson three of our three-part series, A Call to One Another Ministry, Gospel Life in the Body of Christ. I wasn't sure who to call first. It was January 2nd, 1986, and the news from the doctor was much worse than we had expected. My wife's breathing difficulties were not due to pneumonia, but rather to a non-smoker's type of lung cancer. We were told that she just had a few months to live. Donna and I met in college and were married in 1972, and God had given us three children, Mike, who was seven, and Matt, who was five, and Katie, who was only five months old. We were overwhelmed. Of course, our families needed to know, so we started by calling our parents. They lived out of town, but were very helpful making other family calls for us. But we needed help right here in Dallas. And we knew that the first local calls we would make would be to one of our elders and two of our best Christian friends. I praise God that we had someone to call here. I praise God that we had someone in our own church family, Community Bible Chapel, And I praise God that the Christians we called knew us and loved us well enough to minister to us in our family over those long next nine months until our Lord greeted Donna face to face. Discouragement, anxiety, fear, loneliness, guilt, uncertainty, weariness, and of course grief. These and many more words described our family during this trial and And yet we saw the body of Christ respond in a glorious way. We saw the body of Christ in action fulfilling Paul's command from Galatians 6 to bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Our local church was joined by Christians from multiple churches to help bear our burdens. And the ways that they helped were both varied and sufficient. During the first few days of hearing about the cancer, I met twice a day with a small group of men who cried with me, prayed with me, encouraged me, comforted me, exhorted me, and cared for me. These men would remind me of the sovereign goodness of God, the promises of God, and the love of God. Meanwhile, Donna was also ministered to in similar ways. Her struggles were both physical and spiritual, and the women who cared for her and us were the very fragrance of Christ in our home. As the time passed and the cancer worsened, the ministry never let up. People seemed encouraged and energized to help. Through the love and spiritual care of our dear Christian family, our weak faith in Christ grew stronger, our hope in Christ grew sweeter, and the presence of Christ grew nearer. We understood what the psalmist stated in Psalm 73 when he said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The painful memories of those months are overwhelmed by the memories of God's presence in our lives, both individually and through the one another ministry of our loving Christian family, family, brothers and sisters adopted by God into his family 
sharing the same spiritual DNA. Christ in us and us in Christ. A mystical and symbiotic union. We minister to one another out of that union, out of that family. We bring Christ to one another, and we bring one another to Christ. My dear Christian friends, this is one another ministry. Pain strikes all of us, doesn't it? I mean, that's a story of a painful moment of mine in 1986. And it was a painful moment of grief in a variety of things. But when pain strikes us, we have something else that we can... We're looking at it from a different point of view as Christians, aren't we? We have this life in Christ. And when you're facing the death of someone dear, nothing means more than that. Nothing means more than the promise of that resurrection life in Christ. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. But, you know, we struggle, don't we, with the back and forth of, of these difficulties. We, we have this life in the Son, and, and that was part of my journey in 86. But I was struggling with other things, too. If I told you all the details of all the things we tried to do to get her well, to save her life, those in CBC know that. Trips to North Carolina, special medications, natural alternatives, talking to so many different people, fighting for physical life. Is that wrong? No. Did I have too much suke? Was I concerned too much about life on earth versus that eternal life, I don't know. I was young, and I suspect I was, frankly. Although Donna saw it clearly, she wasn't too concerned about Suke. I was. A tug of war, isn't it? And that's what we talked about for the first two lessons. We talked about life in Christ and what that means. This resurrection life in Christ from our first belief that a Christian's been given life in Christ, who we call for help and the answers we're seeking are significantly influenced by our understanding of the gospel. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, a Christian has been given new, complete resurrection life in Christ. We have literally been twice born. And this resurrection life in the Son Zoe is fundamentally different than the universal center of our experiences that we call life under the sun, suke. So we talked about the tension the first last week that exists. And so just as a reminder of our discussion, because we went through a lot of verses, so let's go back and just look at three incidents and just think about this tug of war that was going on with our Lord and the temptation. So what happened there? What was Satan talking to our Lord about? What was he trying to move him toward? Anybody? Suke. Suke. Oh, you're hungry. Hey. Reasonable, right? He was hungry. Hadn't eaten for 40 days. What else did he offer him? Yeah. Power. The world. <laughs> Everything under the sun that he created, of course. How about healing of the paralytic? What did the friends want for their paralytic friend, paralyzed friend? 
I don't even walk. What is that? Suke. That's what they wanted, right? Is anything wrong with that? Of course not. And what did our Lord do? What was his emphasis? Zoe. Eternal life. That's what he needed. If he'd been able to walk out of there without eternal life, what good would that have been? It wouldn't have been that good. The Lord was trying to teach him something. How about Martha and Mary? Let's look at Luke chapter 10, shall we? Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now, you know the story, but as we read this, be thinking about what's going on in this story in light of Suke Zoe tensions, okay? In fact, ever since I've been down this road, and, and let me just make a mention, Suke those are just words. Life under the sun, life in the sun, probably is more descriptive. I'm not trying to throw Greek terms around. It's just for me, it's easier to say, frankly. Verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. Cared for her, didn't he? I mean, that's a sweet Martha, Martha. You are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. What was Martha worried about? It's okay things, right? That's what, isn't that what gets most of our worries going? You and me? I mean, we worry about that all the time. And I mean, I, I worried about it this morning. I'm sitting here, what am I going to do this morning? I mean, I've, I've got, I'm not finished with my lesson. I've got to come here tonight. Karen knows that I feel that tension, and she knows I'm always preparing up to the last minute. But I knew I needed time with him. I knew that. But it was hard because I'm worried, will will I have time or not have time? And it was a tug of war for me. I know you can't see that very well, but if it's dark and scary, then it's meant to be. In fact, when Steve and I found this slide... In his office about four years ago, we were looking for a slide that would display what you can't see here. It says prosperity gospel, therapeutic gospel, and it's got two kind of very uh, scary looking ladies there. It was about midnight because Steve never sleeps, actually. I don't think you ever sleep, Steve, as far as I know. But it was about midnight. We found this slide and we both went, ooh, this is scary. I like it. So anyway. But as we talked about this tension between Suke and Zoe and what tugs us, last week we introduced this alternative gospel, didn't we? That gets into our beliefs. It, it helps move us. And we, it was a therapeutic gospel. And what Michael Horton calls it the self-esteem gospel. Our purpose is to enjoy life and be happy. And God is here to meet our needs. God wants us to feel good about ourselves. Well, interestingly enough, I had a good suggestion this week that that one of the difficulties that we have, and we're going to do a little little exercise right now that I think will show 
how hard it is to fight this battle. Because you all know what the word therapeutic means, just dictionary-wise? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. I figured you'd know, Bernie. Heal. So, you know, it... Yeah, we had this picture of Bob. Bob introduced some other language that we had from the therapeutic gospel. Um, so hold that thought. I typically get out of whack with my slides. So what we shared with Bob Wiley, he told us that there's really, he was right to some degree that there are two types of people, not people that love Neil Diamond and people that don't, but people that are slaves to sin or slaves to Christ. And so we had this language of personalities, didn't we? Strengths and weaknesses and, and personality tests, and I'm a type A, and I'm phlegmatic, I'm choleric, I'm a man from Mars. We, we deal with and we get hit with that all the time. But we also, this therapeutic gospel does other things to us. It, it moves us toward self-worship instead of worship of God, it moves us inward. It moves us toward the different, different anthropology that we just talked about, to see ourselves not through biblical terms, but through other therapeutic terms. It moves us toward walking, um, it moves us toward sanctification by works instead of walking by faith. Most of therapeutic language is behavioral. It's not faith-oriented. The therapeutic gospel moves us toward programs and groups, and so we talked about those a little bit last week, as opposed to prayer in the Word. Was I saying programs and groups are bad or wrong? No. But this this therapeutic gospel, you're going to see, and you're going to see as we talk about counseling here over the next couple of weeks, all of that moves us in a direction, and we need to be discerning what is happening to us. And it moves us toward what I believe is spiritual deadness instead of the biblical gospel, which moves us toward life. In essence, the therapeutic gospel increases our love for self. And the biblical gospel produces love for God and love for others, or it should. Now, Bob this week made a very good point a couple days ago. And this will, these things will be reinforced. But Bob said, isn't it true, Jim, that part of loving God and loving others is another death that's involved? You know what he's talking about? Yeah, death death to self. So in essence, we are dead in Christ, spiritually dead. When we're born again, we're now alive in Christ. Resurrection life in Christ. And now, the resurrection life in Christ that we are to live, we're going to live by striving to die to ourselves so that we might live for others. Or as John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. So back to the definition of therapeutic. Now look at this definition that's well accepted. Therapeutic, relating to therapeutics, a branch of medicine that is concerned specifically with the treatment of disease. A therapeutic effect is a consequence of a medical treatment of any kind, the results of which are judged to be desirable and beneficial. Those changes which are viewed as desirable, given the situation, are called therapeutic. 
those undesirable for the situation are viewed as harmful. So when you and I use the word therapeutic in terms of a gospel, well, maybe that's one thing, but you use the term therapeutic in the world, they're saying, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't it designed to heal? So let's take, let's, um, let's do a little bit of an exercise, shall we? Now, we, we did this last week, actually the first week a little bit. So I want you to think about this pain reality and think about who you would call and why you would call. Not you necessarily, but who someone would call and why that person might call for any of those things or anything else. It's, it's a pain issue that's involved. So who and why? Okay. So you're going to call a neurologist because you have a brain tumor. And why would you call the urologist or the neurologist? Yeah, because it's the brain and that's his expert. Yeah, expertise with the brain, training, and skill. Right. You know, if, if it's a knee problem like I have with my knee, you're going to call an orthopedic guy or just amputate it. Cause, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. So what else? Who else? Who are the other types of people that you call for different things? Pardon me? Okay, so if you, you've got depression, you would call it a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Okay, a psychologist or psychiatrist, and, and why would you call them? Same, okay, their education, all right? Okay, so you're going to call your best friend for what? Because you want some advice, and why would you call your best friend on something? Because she can agree with you. Because <laughs> she's... Because she's going to give you some sympathy and, 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 and a cup of tea. I mean, that's a good reason. And, and you trust them. But actually, I think, I think you're probably right. I think you'd call them because they just need a shoulder to cry on. There's nothing wrong with that. What else? Your mother. Okay, you're going to call your mother. My mother's 91. I call her three times a day. Why do I call her three times a day? Because I get in trouble if I don't. So that's easy. <laughs> For, okay, for child rearing, because I need they have experience raising children. So you call somebody who has that experience that you want to learn from. Excellent. What else? Okay, so you're going to call a marriage counselor if you have marriage problems. Now, why would you call a marriage counselor? Because they're particularly skilled, special skill in marriage issues. If you have a financial problem, you'd call your you know, financial advisor, right? Because that's their skill area. Skills in dollars. Attorneys, you're going to call them? What if, what if you're struggling with anger? Who do you call? An anger man. Yeah, you call a program. So, I mean, we could... The, the, these are real issues, aren't they? Any, anything else? That, when would you call your pastor? 
Okay, so if you're struggling with lack of faith, you might call your pastor, right? Or maybe you'd call an elder in the church. Disgust. Just because you're just disgusted. I, I, I hit some things up there, I know. Yeah, I was running out of ideas. Oh, no, trust me. Trust me, I wasn't running out of ideas. I just running out of space to make the slide look good. So, I mean, these are these are all kinds of. I mean, now who would you call with ADHD or OCD? Now those are interesting terms, aren't they? What do they mean? Terminology. You got you got some special needs, right? Well, I'm going to give you a personal story of that involves uh, somebody you know. To give you a practical example of the of the tension that's between Suke and Zoe, between in the sun and under the sun, that can go on. And most of you know who Donna Dare is. And Don, you may not know, but one of the last things Don did creatively as an artist was do my logo for one another ministry. Couldn't draw it, but he was still creative, and it was his idea. And so about five years, a little less than five years ago, Don was at our house, uh, and, and he was at our house with Orv and Terry Murphy and a couple other people. And they were, those of you who know Orv, if he comes to your house, don't worry about him being polite and leaving early because he loves Zoe discussions. He, he'll talk about the Lord. He, he has a passion for that. He would rather do that than sleep. Praise God for that. Because as the evening wore off, a few people left. And Don is there with his sweet wife, Judy, and with uh, Karen and me and a couple others and with Orv. And Don looked at Orv and said, Orv, I've got a decision to make. I am struggling with there's I'm out of things they can do chemo and radiation there's nothing else I can do and the last two things they've done have been horrible for me the treatments on the suke world the tra- treatments have been horrible my quality of life has been terrible but my doctor said there's another experimental thing that she thinks might help but the last two things didn't really give me any more time and I've researched it, and it looks like it's going to be even more horrible, and I don't know what to do. Do I do that? Do I continue to pursue this life here under earth and listen to the expert or not? Now, now, what was the challenge for Don? What was going on as a believer there? Yeah, and, and, and how was he going to have to make up his mind as to what to do? What's the battle for Christians? It's faith, isn't it? It's a faith battle. What do I put my trust in and my faith in? Now, Don, you know, there's this joy in the journey. Old Michael Card song, there's a joy in the journey. And, and Don's joy was not in Suke at all. It was painful, 19 years of brain tumor. But he had joy in the Lord. And so he's wrestling with this faith decision. And Orv, because he knows, Orv said, I don't have any trouble with you saying no to that doctor at all. If you're ready to be with the Lord and you've thought through it. But man's wisdom, 
says, oh, you need to pursue everything you can do to prolong life. But faith gives, we have different choices, don't we, in Christ, where we know what life's about. And so he prayed about it. Judy and Don talked about it, and not sure exactly when they decided, but it wasn't too long after that they decided not to pursue it. And a few months later, and Don had fairly good months before he passed away, just the last few weeks, really, maybe several days. And some of you may know, part of the reason I share the story is that it was four years ago today that Don met the Lord and greeted my first wife, Donna, and his mom and many other sweet saints. Battle of faith. So our first whole point was designed to help us think through a little bit of what it means to, in light of our life in Christ, these pressing needs that we have and how to think about them, through what lens to think about them. But there was a second point we said that we needed to talk about. Who do we call and why? So we started that tonight, didn't we? Who do we call and why? And that's where our second foundational belief is going to take us. It's going to help start answering that question. Our first belief, a Christian has been given life in Christ. So any guesses on the second belief? You want a clue? Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you two clues. First clue, the second belief not only directly impacts the first belief, it delivered the first belief. I know Karen can't answer it. She's been, because I told her. Anybody? All right. How about the song at the cross? Start thinking through the words. And let me help you with that. Think through the refrain, not the stanzas. <laughs> you don't want me to sing it for you. Faith, that's a good word. It's not right, but it's a good word. <laughs> the what? The light. It was there by faith. I received my sight. There you go. So you have Karen sing it. The second belief. A Christian has been given light and sight in Christ. My dear friends, these are the two anchors to what we're going to talk about for 12 weeks. Now, we have three other foundational beliefs, but they will fit underneath these, and, and we will expand on these. What do I mean? A Christian has been given light and sight in Christ. Life in the Son and light in the sun. So, I don't have a long, unlike belief one, that fairly expanded, expanded definition. This is all I have for you with this. A Christian has been given light and sight in Christ. As Christians, we have light and sight in Christ, which is uniquely different and superior to creation. So, let me repeat this. As Christians, we have light and sight in Christ, which is uniquely different and superior to creation. Now, what do I mean? Well, let's start and look at it a little bit. Let's look at light, first of all. I don't have 
we're not going to look at 500 verses on light. Look at a few, and we'll talk about sight. We'll talk briefly about creation. I don't know how many, like, we all remember how many words in the New Testament verses there were for uh, life, right, for Zoe? You all remember? 281, that's right. So I don't, have, I don't have a clue how many of them for light or sight, but there are lots of them, and there are lots of examples as well. And you'll think of plenty of those. And we'll weave in more life verses throughout the next nine weeks and more uh, light and sight verses. But tonight, let's get started and look at some key ones. John 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is a great transition verse, isn't it, for our first two beliefs. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And yes, that's Zoe, of course. John 1, 5 and John 3:19. Now these verses tell us why we need it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That's John 1, 5. John 3:19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So we need to keep in mind as we talk about life that. Non-Christians are dead. You understand that? We talk about light. Non-Christians are what? Yeah. They're in the darkness. But sometimes we are too as believers, aren't we? So 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race. I think this is from Isaiah 43 maybe. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You know, that part's from Isaiah, I think, 43. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, the gospel. We're talking about gospel, life, and the body of Christ. That's our subtitle for what we're talking about. The gospel moves us from death to life. And it moves us from darkness to light. Now, how about sight? Well, there's a ton of verses about sight. But I'm just going to look at one tonight. And it's my favorite, one of my favorite chapters in all the scriptures. It's John chapter 9. Now, you know the story about the blind man. He's by the pool of Siloam. The Lord comes walking by. And remember how he heals him? He spits in some mud or clay, rubs it in his eyes, he's blind, tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off. That's why I call the blind man clay, just because it's easier than the blind man. Okay, so it's it's clay. So clay, what did clay want more than anything? He wanted his physical sight, didn't he? Because clay had been rejected. He'd been rejected by his parents. They weren't taking care of him. He was a beggar. He was rejected by his neighborhood, his community, 
He was rejected by the church authorities. He was a beggar. If he had his physical sight, that his suke was handled, wouldn't it? He would, he would have the love of family, the love of the neighborhood, the acceptance of the established church. And he gets it. He gets his physical sight. Well, what happens to Clay? He goes back to the hood. Well, I think that that's you. I think it might be him, but, but I'm not sure you look like him. But, you know, he was blind, and so they don't. You know, you need to go talk to the authorities, you know, the Pharisees. And, and so he goes there, and he tells them what goes on. It has this dialogue with him. Uh, they get the, fam, the parents in there, and they said, well, you know, if, he, if that's what he said, I mean, we're not going to say that, because remember, they were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue, the parents. His parents wouldn't even stand up for him. And so, so he's ultimately, ultimately, he himself gets kicked out. One of those phenomenal verses. And then after his dialogue with the Pharisees, Clay is kicked out. Said, and, they, and, and they kicked him out. And then it said, and Jesus, having found him, he engages him. Now, when did Clay become a Christian or not? People talk about that. I know this, that it said that he fell down at his feet and worshipped him after he was dialogue with him. That's a sign of a believer. And we could see his light coming in as he grew. Even in the text, it was, he was just someone, and then he was a prophet, and then he was, must be from God by the end of the whole story. But what's interesting is, our Lord's statement at the end of John 9. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. You see how that is similar to life and death? If you don't see that you're dead, you're never going to see that you need life. If you don't see that you're blind, you're never going to see that you need sight. So the gospel moves us from death to life. It moves us from darkness to light. And it moves us from blindness to sight. Okay, that's not extensive definitions of light and sight, but at least whetting your appetite for what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks, by the way, because we're going to be anchored on this belief next week, and then we're off for Thanksgiving week, and then the week after Thanksgiving. So you'll have things to think about. In fact, I'm going to give you some things to think about for next week. What do I mean by creation? Well, who do we call and why? What are these needs? What What's going on in our beliefs that are moving us to make those decisions? Isn't it our beliefs about who can help their skills, who has the knowledge to solve the issue? Correct? Who has the truth? Who has the knowledge? Who has the skills? Who has the training? But it's really... Knowledge. We want to go to the best person to solve the issues. So let me suggest that 
when we talk about light and sight, that, that there's another word, and it's going to come up, and we're going to talk about it, um, and it's going to be the word truth. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So, if light and sight are tied somewhat to truth, we can see a pretty important, light and sight is pretty important, isn't it? If it's pointing us to truth, of course, this is pointing us to our Lord as the truth. And we know what the way is. Everybody who's been to Pilgrim's Progress and seen me on stage knows. Well, for that, I can give you some direction. Do you see the wicket gate? You know, did you like the way I pointed right there? I, I still can't get those lines out of my mind. I keep saying them as I go to bed every night. Do you see the wicked gate? No. Do you see the shining light? Keep that light in your eyes and go towards it, and soon you will see the gate. Okay. You all know what a wicked gate is anyway? Yeah. My, my daughter who was there said, Dad, it was interesting, but why are you pointing us to a wicked gate? I didn't, mean, I didn't mean to say wicked. I was trying to say wicked. Oh, wicked. Well, what does that mean, Dad? Well, and I explained it to her. She said, well, why didn't you put that in the program? It would have helped. I agree. But Hampton's right. A wicked gate is a small gate that only has room for one person to go in and out of it. Very secure gate. One way. It's narrow. So the way is narrow. It's not that only a few people get in. Heaven's full of more people than we think. But there is only one way. Truth. How do we know truth? Because we said last week, remember, we need discernment as to what is true and what isn't. We didn't say that these things are all bad. Most of them written by believers. That there's good material in them. That's Christian-related words. And, but how do we know if it's moving us inward? therapeutically, if it's needs-oriented? Or how do we know if it's moving us toward God, toward Zoe? How do we know? How do we make those decisions? I already gave you some examples last week, and a couple of you said, ooh, that, I didn't think about that. And I don't have time to go into every one of these, and there's tons more, because that's really not the goal of this class. The goal of this class is to say we need discernment. We need to have truth to know what to do. And especially, we need it as it results the counseling world. This counseling world that I introduced to you very briefly last week. Secular counseling that's big, dominates. Christian counseling that is very big. And then biblical counseling that is small. (laughs) And I suggested that most of you don't even know that there's such a difference between Christian counseling and biblical counseling. Well, there is. And, and that difference is going to be talked about next week. But before we get into all of that, let me just spend another moment on this slide. My goal in this class is not to dissect this world for you. I'm going to help give you some background on sort of the major players and some of the major thoughts. But this slide is important not because of the three areas of counseling, but because of this line. I'm suggesting that we need to do much more down here 
and that these are two different worlds. Two different worlds. As the body of Christ world currently today is typically is sending stuff up here like crazy, outsourcing it like crazy, speed dialing it like crazy. And, and, and that's just wrong. I'm not saying that this whole world's wrong. I'm not saying it's evil, doesn't ever do anything good. I'm not saying that. There might be times to call this world. And when I say this world, I don't mean just the counseling world. I'm saying you're going to have tough decisions of who to call on some of these things. Do I call the doctor or not? How do I make those decisions? You know, so we, we need to think biblically. We need to be discerning. So if a Christian's been given light and sight in Christ, and as Christians we have light and sight in Christ, which is uniquely different and superior to creation, what do I mean by light and sight? There's a couple terms here. That There's a couple terms that are in your Bible dictionaries, that are in your theologies, and actually are in your Bibles. The first term, light, involves a ten-letter word. Any guesses? It's a good guess, Robert. Illumination is a good guess, but that's not correct for light. But keep that word in mind because it's the right word for sight. Sight equals illumination. You were thinking, right? So if sight equals illumination, what about light? You got it, Stan. Revelation. So light equals revelation. Sight means illumination. Now, you're good Bible students. Tell me the two types of revelation. Yeah. General revelation and special revelation. Now, what is general revelation? Another term for general revelation. And creation. Nature, creation. So you see where we're going a little bit? We need to understand revelation and the tension that might be between general revelation and special revelation. And then what is this illumination thing? So I'm going to give you a place to start. This is your homework. Thinking about revelation and illumination, and I'm going to give you a verse to study. The person who started biblical counseling, that little group that you're not sure the difference between that and Christian counseling, is Jay Adams. And in 1971, I think, he wrote the book, Competent to Counsel. The theme verse for his book, where he pulled the title of the book, and he spent a lot of time in developing the thought, was around Romans 15:14, which says, And concerning you, my brethren... I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able, competent, also to admonish, counsel one another. So he took able, called it competent. He took admonish, called it counsel. That word admonish is nethetio. You've maybe heard nethetic counseling. That's another term that's out there. And he wrote the book, Competent to Counsel. So I want you to think about that. Think about that verse. Study it a little bit. If you have some time, we're going to spend a little time on it. Because the question is, 
Are we competent to counsel one another? And, and what does it mean to counsel one another? In other words, there's a whole lot of verses that you know are one another in verses in Scripture. Aren't those wonderful? Look at all those things we can do. And those are only a few of the 74 or 75 one another in verses. But counsel one another. Can we do that or not? And, and what in the world does that word mean? How do we understand it? That's for next week. Thanks for coming tonight.